0: This week's episode is brought to you by the Communitor Two, the Communo Cruise. We're gonna have more details right after the introduction.
1: And welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born, identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And just like that
0: really handsome dude who was talking when the episode started that said there's going to be more details about the Communicore 2, that's that no, time. Wait, this, was,
1: this was your week, not my week. Uh, what? Oh. Oh. George was making so, fun of my looks, you guys. <laughs> no, just I saw the photo of you when you shaved. Oh, yeah. It's
0: scary, right? Remember I when like, I didn't what? shave when we first started the show? What was I thinking? What? What so was well, you're
1: in California. Now you got that laid back lifestyle. Oh, I know. I know. Anyway, we were talking about something important, I think.
0: We were the commuter <laughs> cruise. So we, we were talked about it a little bit in the beginning of this season. Uh, we have what we're going to do now. It's going to be a four day Bahaman cruise and it's going to leave Port Canaveral on December 5th, uh, 2016, which is this year. Um, it's going to go to Nassau. It's going to go to G- Castaway Key. Uh, it's going to have a day at mm. sea and it's going to be great we're gonna have a great time we'll probably go to the parks like before and then like maybe universal after i don't know that's what martina tells me so i don't have a choice i gotta do what she tells yeah, me you to gotta do. do what she says i mean that's about it yeah yeah, yeah. but if you're interested contact uh Teresa cory at communicoor weekly at FairyGodmotherTravel.com, and she'll get you a quote and trust me when i say we picked the cheapest cruise we could disney cruise we can find <laughs> because we're cheap so it is significantly cheaper than the first community was that's for sure yes but this is the one that doesn't have lifeboats on it, right? That's why we got it so cheap. Yeah, that's true. No, that's true. We, a, we, we, had a, we had a Groupon, right? So what happens is, if God forbid anything happens, you blow up a bunch of balloons, mm-hmm. and you just stick them in your shirt. I'm uh, just kidding. We're not gonna, we're gonna in <laughs> trouble for saying that. So let's just not do that. Anyway, if you're interested, uh, communicate Weekly at uh, Fairygodmothertravel.com, and Teresa will hook you up with some quotes and prices, and we hope to see you guys there.
1: Yeah, because I mean, if you don't go, we might cry. <laughs> It's time for
0: the Six Flags is currently the largest regional theme park chain in the entire world. Uh, they currently operates uh, 18 theme parks, thrill parks, water parks and family entertainment centers. Uh, but it all started with a theme park in Texas that was built after Angus Wynn visited Disneyland and felt that Texas of all places needed a similar park. So he formed the Great Southwestern Corporation, and they began planning for a theme park. So Angus
1: was born on January 9th, 1914, in Texas. His father was a lawyer, and his brother would be one of the original owners of the Dallas Cowboys, which apparently has something to do with the sports. The what? Um, I don't know. The sports. what it says. The uh, <laughs> So in 1946, after serving in the Navy, uh, Angus returned to Dallas where he was tasked by his uncle to develop an 820-acre tract of land into a post-war community. And Wynwood, as it was called, was a self-contained community that also had a 27-acre shopping center. The Wynwood Village Shopping Center offered a hotel, a theater, a bank,
0: a beauty salon, restaurants, doctor's offices, and a grocery store. And it was also an incredibly ambitious undertaking and held a value of $25 million in 1946 and $40 million in 1960. So it was obvious that Angus had a flair for real estate development, and this would help with the development of the Six Flags.
1: And along with investors from New York, Angus hired Randall Duell, a set designer from MGM who was originally an architect, to help plan the park. And just like with the designs of Disneyland, Duell understood that a good theme park needed theming. So now, Randall Duell probably deserves his own segment. But in 1959, he joined C.V. Wood, who helped build Disneyland to design Freedomland in New York. And after Freedomland, he designed Six Flags over Texas. And after Six Flags Over Texas,
0: uh, he was tapped for the following projects: uh, there was Marriott's Great Adventure Parks in Illinois and California, uh, the Universal Studios tour, the Texas Pavilion of the 1964-65 New York World's Fair, uh, Magic Mountain, Opryland, Astroworld in Houston, and Hershey Park. You know, just to list, you know, the, the very small few of them. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it took over a year year to build, and it opened in 1961 with just a 45-day season, which is insane. Um, mm-hmm. Angus spent $3.5 million of his own funds for the
1: park, which cost a total of $10 million. So Angus wasn't really worried about competing with Disneyland and focused his marketing on Texans. And fortuitously, the theme park was built in Arlington between Dallas and Fort Worth, situated off a major highway like Disneyland and most other successful theme parks that would be built later. Uh, Originally Angus wanted to call it Texas Under Six Flags, and you know, similar to the birth of Mickey Mouse, it's become a legend in the company. Some attribute it to Angus's wife and others to entertainment director Charles Meek, but one of them told Angus that Texas isn't under anything. Or translated from the original Texan, Texas ain't under anything probably the best accent you have ever done I know in the five of the show. years and there we go there we go that's the one thank
0: you ladies and gentlemen so the six flags that have flown over Texas are Mexico Spain France, uh, Confederate States of America and Texas and the United States of America of course so when the park opened it was themed to this these six areas not only for theming but also to help guests navigate the park the park opened on August 5th 1961 and as mentioned earlier it was only open for 45 days but over 550,000 people visited by November 25th, 1961. Obviously, the park was a huge success,
1: and it changed Angus's original plan for it. Yeah, so Angus had planned to use the park to be a temporary money maker for the Great Southwest Industrial District, and then he would use that money to fund other projects. But over time, Six Flags Over Texas would become the biggest tourist attraction for the state. And during the first season, Six Flags over Texas used the pay one price model that sort of started with Pacific Ocean Park, which charged 90 cents admission, but some attractions still had charges to them. And most parks and fairs charged a very small admission and then sold individual ride coupons. In this case at Six Flags over Texas uh, admission, the first season was $2.75 for adults and $2.25 for children. So, what was available for that first season? According to the guide map, then, there were
0: 46 major attractions. Now, granted, some of these major quote-unquote attractions were restaurants and static displays, but it was still fairly impressive for a theme park like that. So, some of the major, major attractions, there was uh, the Front Gate area had the Star Mall with the Dancing Fountain, the Modern USA section in the, has the uh, Southwest Life Petting Zoo with goats, uh, there was a donkey, a baby elephant, and a turtle. And there was also uh, the Missile Chaser, which was a scrambler ride, the Happer, Happy Motoring Freeway, which is kind of like the Autopia, Astrolift, which was a gondola ride, and the Sidewinder, a uh, wild mouse coaster. And it was themed on current and
1: future Texas. So the Missile Chaser makes tons of sense, right? <laughs> totally. Okay, so the French section recreated Fort St. Louis, around the time period of 1865. It has La Salle's Riverboat Adventure, which was similar to the Jungle Cruise, except there were Spanish conquistadors attacking your boat while you searched for an alternate route to the Mississippi. Um, The Confederacy of the United States was based on Texas from 1861 to 1865. It had the amphitheater and the Butterfield stagecoach ride, the Little Dixie carousel, and the Confederate recruiting station and reenactment performers. uh, Are you getting uncomfortable reading this? Yeah, I was going to try to say that a little quickly, but I realize we need to talk about it. Okay. So at the Confederate recruiting station and the walk-around reenactment performers, the rebel soldiers, dressed in appropriate greys, um would parade throughout the day looking for northern spies, and they would then execute the spy. Uh and then you could also take a raft to Skull Island and, and ride the tree slide in the Skull Slide. And apparently this was modeled after Tom Sawyer Island, maybe
0: we think. Yeah, maybe. So, the Skull Island was considered part of the Confederacy section, but we're still not entirely sure why. Um, and it was, you know, it was themed loosely on pirates from the Gulf Coast, like uh, John Lafayette. And you took a raft that looked like a log cotton raft, to the island. And Skull Rock was obviously like, the main part of the island. You would climb up and through the right ear hole, you can look through the eye sockets, and then slide down the left ear hole. And there was also the Swamp Tree Slide, when you would climb up 30 feet up this steel staircase around a tree and slid down a spiral slide on burlap sacks. And we're pretty sure this wasn't the inspiration for the Ewok village in Return of the Jedi, but we can't be 100% positive on that. Yeah, yeah,
1: don't quote us yet. Uh, The Texas section was modeled on Texas... Uh, sort of like of the Old West cowboy, cowboy era, or cowboy town. Uh, it featured the Six Flags Railroad, which like Disneyland, Santa Fe, encircled the park. And the Texas station was called the Great Southwest Station. And it was the only station on the route until 1963. So the park opened with two engines. Engine number one is known as the Green Train and was built in 1901. And engine number two is the Red Train and was built in 1897. The engines were built for a sugar cane plantation in Louisiana. Uh, the green train was renamed the General Sam Houston, and the red train was called the Maribo B. Lamar. And they are only they're they are the only opening day attractions that are still left. Uh, but you could also find the Astrolift Terminal in Texas, so you could go from Texas to the USA. And there were also gunfights? And found out those were staged. Oh, oh, not legitimate ones. Okay, not this was Texas, so we didn't know.
0: So we don't know. We don't know. But but yeah, the Spanish uh, section recreates the time between 1821 and 1915 in which uh, Texas was part of the Spanish Empire, and in the first season, all it had was a burro ride. But (laughs) sadly, this wasn't a major roller coaster, but similar to the mule rides at Disneyland, Uh, it was called Los Conquistadores Coronado Burro. Sure. Yeah, um, exact. But it was removed after the second season. So Mexico represented Texas between 1821 and 1836. And you walked under the ben- Antonio Banderas de Clores, <laughs> um, which were the colorful, what was wrong? Was Canopy? that wrong? Uh,
1: no, that, I think the Antonio Banderas de Coloris is perfect. Okay, cool. We might get a sponsorship from hey, Mr. All right. Antonio Banderas. Hey. <laughs> they were uh, colorful canopied gardens.
0: And you can also ride the Fiesta train, which was a small, uh, narrow-gauge train that took you through various animated scenes. And for kids, there was the goat cart ride. Not golf cart. Goat, goat cart. Say that, say that again. Goat cart.
1: Yes. Which is tea. an actual
0: cart pulled by goats. <laughs> That's genius. Um yeah. but between Mexico and Texas
1: there was a Indian village. Yeah, surprisingly I showed that picture of that to my twelve year old, and he was even more excited once he saw they were real goats. I was yeah. like, Okay. <laughs> that's awesome. Okay, and so all of that was just the first forty five days. And there would be a lot of changes over the next fifty plus years that the park's been around. No spoilers though. So we're just gonna take a look at some of the highlights that have happened, even though it's a lot of highlights. So in nineteen sixty two The Sidewinder coaster is moved from modern USA to Mexico, the section of Mexico, and it's renamed La Cucaracha. Uh, And in its place, a second track is added to the Happy Motoring Freeway, because kids just love driving little cars. Um, Texas gets the Chaparral Antique Cars Ride, and these are sort of like Model T's or jalopies. And the Confederacy gets the Caddo War Canoes. And the canoes are just like the ones at Disneyland, except a, quote, indian end quote employee steered yeah and they made jokes and other things apparently so uh skull island then gets a treehouse slide, a barrel slide and a mini pirate ship play area the casa magnetica opened in the spanish section and this is sort of like what they call the crooked house with a guided walking tour you know mainly with optical illusions like is this floor crooked is that door really this small stuff like that those are very simple optical
0: illusions Yes, it was. But they were fun, I'm sure. In 1963, Boomtown, an entirely new section of the park, was added. Um, And it was based on a typical Texas oil field of the 1890s. The Boomtown station of the Six Flags Railroad allowed for a second stop on the route. And the park also also installed a 1925 or 1926 uh, Denzel carousel called the Merry-Go-Round in the guides. Mm -hmm. There was also the Skyhook, which was a really odd ride. And I think it deserves more attention uh, for for a second here. It was actually originally built for the 1958 Brussels World Fair, and it was moved to Six Flags Over Texas for the 1963 season. So there was a large Y-shaped tower that had two baskets, one off of each arm. And the baskets would hold 14 people and would reach a height of 155 feet one basket would be raised halfway while the other basket was lowered halfway and the entire structure rotated 180 degrees while both baskets were in the middle then the baskets would continue with one unloading and one loading gas while the other one remained 155 feet in the air
1: yeah so count me out of that one okay fine i'll do it myself okay that's fine and you can report back to us so um another big moment in 1963 was another first for six flags and the world Ooh. Ooh. <sighs> yeah. So, <clears throat> excuse my non Spanish. El Aceradero, or the sawmill, debuted. And it was the world's first log flume ride and was built by our good friends at Aero Development. Hey. Um, yay. So, Aero had also built the happy motoring and uh, chaparral cars. Um, and at that point, sadly, the burrows were booted out for the log flume in the Spanish section. And this log flume would spur Arrow to build them all over the world, including for the one at the 1964 New York World's Fair. And the goat cart ride was removed. But I'm still kind of stunned that that even existed. I think we
0: need to make a theme park just for that ride, honestly. It could be the five-legged goat cart. Hey, that works. Yeah. Uh, So, 1964 saw the addition of a ride, and several others uh, were moved. The Lunker Cave uh, added to the Confederacy, and it was a water-based dark ride with animated elves that sang as you traveled through the mystical water-propelled ride. The La Cucaracha Roller Coaster was removed, and El Sombrero Hat Ride was added in its place in Mexico, which seems (laughs) even more vaguely racist than earlier. In 1966, the Runaway Mine Train was added to Boomtown, and this is another important first. Uh, Arrow took the technology that they used to build the Matterhorn at Disneyland to build this roller coaster, and it cost $1 million and used tubular steel pipe tracks and nylon wheels, and this coaster actually helped pave the way for all future metal coasters and has been added to most all the regional parks
1: in the United States. Yeah, and Six Flags Over Georgia was opened in 1967, but that's a different podcast. Um, Over the next few years, we had some flat rides added, like the Jet Set, which was modeled after the Astro Orbiters. And Sid and Marty Croft um, redesigned the Fiesta train with more modern animations. And they included a gun battle in a Mexican city, which had Batman and Robin peeking out of a window. What? Yeah, and I don't know if it was like a cardboard cutout or little animations, but maybe a little foreshadowing? Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) Okay, so they also added a second flume ride right next to the first one, because in Texas it's apparently so hot you need two flume rides. And in 1969, the tower section was added. And this section is sort of themed after an oil derrick. And the oil derrick is the 300 foot tall observation tower which was built by Intamin. And it sort of looks like the Eiffel Tower at Kings Dominion and Kings Island. And they added a dolphin show because… They
0: added a mini mine train next to the regular mine train in 1970. And this was a ride especially for the kids. Uh, Six Flags Over Mid America opened in St. Louis in 1971. And they also opened the Big Ben poster uh, by… I don't know, you're the rollercoaster, that's it yeah. uh, and that was a speed racer uh, style coaster with toboggan style seating in 1973, Good Times Square opened, you mean like
1: dynamite.
0: Uh sadly no that, that would have oh. been awesome, not even oh. Mutt. that would have been even better um, so Good Times Square was modeled on the 1950s uh, Doc Snooker's Infernal Electric Bumping Machines were added basically this amazing bumper car ride with a great name, that's what made it uh, but not, not Go-Karts, that would be even better the railroad depot was added after the boomtown was removed the year before, and also they added the Crazy Legs, an octopus-style ride, which happens to be a uh, childhood favorite of George's, I do believe.
1: Yes, it is. I love those
0: rides. Um, Six Flags purchased Astroworld in 1975, uh, Great Adventure in New Jersey, my home park, in 1977, mm-hmm. and Magic Mountain in California in 1979. The Texas Shootout was added in 1976. That's C H U T E, not <laughs> shoot shoot. Um, exactly. Just wanted to be sure. Basically, it was a parachute drop style ride, which debuted at the 1939 uh, New York World's Fair. And the other Six Flags each had one. Uh, The Great Gasp at Georgia, the Sky Shooter in uh, Middle America.
1: And obviously, Texas Shootout is a more better, but also very confusing name. (laughs) Yes, it is. So Shockwave was added in 1978, which was a looping coaster with two back-to-back vertical loops. And sadly, in 1979, Angus Wynn passed away. Um, In 1980, the Judge Roy Scream coaster was added to Good Times Square. And this was a custom out-and-back wooden coaster named after the 19th century justice of the peace, Judge Roy Bean. And so people listening from the future, we would like a roller coaster named after us. Yes, please. We'd be okay with that. And then the Conquistador, which was one of those flying ship rides that goes back and forth and makes me sick, was added in 1981. And in 1982... The Lasalle River Adventure, one of the original rides, was removed along with the Petting Zoo and the Last of Skull Island. And Texas Cliffhanger, another first of its kind for Six Flags and the World, uh, was uh, debuted or debuted. It was a 128-foot L-shaped tower that took riders up to the top and then dropped them 10 stories, gradually curving 90 degrees so the riders were on their backs in the cart when the ride stopped. And the ride was, again, as I said, the first of its kind, and cost $2.1 million. Uh, Penn Central
0: had uh, been managing the parks for the first few years, and then sold them to Bally Manufacturing Corporation in 1982. In 1983, the children's play area was themed to Pac-Man, uh, the Roaring Rapids, and the Texas Tornado Swings were also added there in that time. In 1984, Pac-Man Land was <laughs> removed, and replaced with Looney Tunes Land in 1985. Six Flags bought Marriott's Great America in 1984, and many of the flat rides there were rethemed. In 1986, to help celebrate the park's 25th anniversary, the uh, Sarajevo bobsleds from Magic Mountain were moved to Six Flags over Texas and renamed the Avalanche. And it was unique because the bobsleds weren't on a track and would never offer the same experience
1: twice, which made it twice as deadly. Okay, so in 1987, Westray Capital bought Six Flags for $617 million. And Splashwater Falls, a Shoot the Shoots is added in 1987. And the Flashback coaster by Vekoma is added in 1989 to the Good Times Square section. And the Texas Giant roller coaster is added to the Texas section, of course, in 1990. And it's a wooden coaster that was redesigned in 2011 by Rocky Mountain Construction as a super hybrid coaster. And in 1991, Time Warner bought one half of Six Flags, which is an independent group that actually manages the park, which is kind of weird. And then Blackstone and Werheim Schroeder bought the second half. Most of the changes over the next few years were cosmetic
0: or just simply name changes. Uh, In 1996, Runaway Mountain, uh, an enclosed coaster by Premier Rides is added. Uh, And this is the park's eighth roller coaster. In 1998, Premier Parks buys the Six Flags Corporation, which is the body that manages the park. In 1998, the Mr. Freeze Coaster opens, and this is a Premier rides uh, launch coaster. In uh, 2012, the trains were reversed, and it would be called Mr. Freeze uh, Reverse Blast. And in 1999, the Gotham City section of the park opens, because Gotham was always
1: like part of Texas, right? Yeah, I think so. Okay, so obviously, Gotham City is themed to Batman from the DC Comics universe, and one of the big attractions is the Bollinger and Mabillard inverted coaster called Batman the Ride. Uh, over the first half of the decade, a lot of flat rides were added, mainly in the children's area, including 10 new rides for the 45th anniversary, including Cloud Bouncer, Crazy Legs, the Sidewinder, the Rodeo Ride, and La Fiesta de la Stazas. Or sure. something. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, 2001 also saw the addition of Titan. uh, It's the longest and fastest ride in the entire park. And it's also the tallest coaster in all of Texas, because everyone knows everyone does it bigger in Texas. In 2008, Tony Hawk's Big Spin was added to the park. And it would be renamed uh, Pandemonium, but that happens later on. In 2010, Six Flags began removing the licenses that they didn't own, which would leave only the Warner Brothers licenses, and renamed a lot of the attractions. In 2012, they added the Texas Skyscreamer, the world's tallest swing ride at 400 feet. On top of the ride was a star and
1: the Six Flags, but George is definitely not going to ride it still. No one. I'm shaking my head. Nope. So, 2015 saw the addition of Bugs Bunny, Boomtown area for the kids, and Batman the Ride became Batman the Ride backwards when they reversed the cars in 2014. I mean, they're clever. Very clever. Um, yeah. Justice League Battle for Metropolis, which is a Sally Dark Ride, opened in 2015, and the animatronics have been compared to Disney. They're on that quality. So... Six Flags Over Texas has an incredibly rich history that has been very intertwined with popular culture of the time. And you know, it's neat to see that the park has never been afraid to change and has been more successful than anyone has ever imagined. The stars at night are big and bright.
0: (gasps) Deep in the heart of Texas.
1: I couldn't resist that one. So anyway, glad I did it. We, we'd love to know what you guys think about Six Flags over Texas. Have you visited, did you get to visit in some of the earlier years? Call us and let us know. Call us on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. That's 424-785-GOAT. He's a nerd. He's a, nerd. He's, a He's a geek. But we all
0: like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his feet. Ah! It's George's Book of the Week.
1: So this week's book is Roland Mack the king of fun. Uh, So back in 2015 of November, which was last year, I had the opportunity to ride the VR coaster at Fun Spot during IAPA and virtual reality is going to change the industry. Uh, So the VR coaster is a project of Mack Rides, which is owned by the Mack family. They also own Europa Park, which is the largest theme park in Germany and the second largest in Europe. Um, And my post about the VR coaster made it over to Mack, which I was kind of excited about, and they reached out to me and they actually sent me this book. I was like, hey, I like books. Okay. So Roland Mac, King of Fun by Benno Stieber was originally published in German. And this is an English translation, which is really the only negative thing I can say about it because occasionally you run into an oddly phrased sentence. Sort of like listening to CommuniCore Weekly. What does you mean? Exactly, Yoda. So still, if you're interested in the theme park business as a whole or in the development of Mac, you need to get a copy of this book because it really intertwines the history of Roland Mack, uh, his family, you know, the Mack family business, and Europa Park. Uh, And fans of Disneyland and Walt Disney are going to find a lot to like in this book as well. You know, although the Mack family has an industrial background, there are a lot of similarities between the Disneys and the Mack's. Uh, Franz Mack, who was Roland's father, was very much in control of the family business, and his almost singular vision really led the family to its successes. Uh, And you always understood that Franz, and then his son Roland, as the head of the family, but everyone in the family was able to weigh in on decisions, you know, And but everybody listened, which was good. So the Mack family business goes back to the, eight, the 1780s when they started building carriages and stagecoaches. Eventually, they started building caravans for traveling showmen and wagons for organs, and they built their first coaster in 1921 and their first car ride, you know, a jalopy type ride, in 1936. And they began exporting rides to America in 1952 after building their first bobsled ride in 1951. And King's Dominion still operates a Mack bobsled, the Avalanche. Everybody needs to ride it. So in 72, Fran, 1972, Franz and Roland toured the U.S. and visited a lot of theme parks and France really wanted to develop a park and wanted it to be able to support and show off the Mac rides. And just like Disneyland, it took a lot of personal and family financing to get Europa Park opened. So the book does delve fairly deeply into the family relationships, especially with how decisions were made and how each member of the family really worked to make the park successful. In a time, family members were taking tickets and doing park maintenance. And we read a lot about the challenges faced by the park and how the family rose to meet them. Uh, as we travel through the book, we see how Roland, Mack, and Europa Park are really intertwined. Uh, Roland was always looking for ways to keep the park vibrant while keeping its historical roots. When steel became the expectation for coasters, and Mack didn't make steel coasters, they contracted with Bollinger and Mabillard to bring the Silver Star hypercoaster to the park. And they added hotels, despite concern that there would be empty in the off-season, you know, the Macs found that they could offer seasonal events and fill the hotels with conventions. As I read the book, I was really surprised at how similar Europa Park was to Disneyland. Some of the success was based on Disneyland's success, uh, but much of it was just the forward-thinking nature of Roland Mac and the Mac family. And there are a lot of anecdotes in the book that offer insight into running a modern theme park, something that anyone with a vested interest in theme parks and rides will find you know, this book is very intriguing and very inspiring, and you will learn a lot about the Mac family and appreciate mac Rides a lot more. So this week's book was Roland Mac, The King of Fun. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged.
0: The Barnstormer, featuring the great Goofini at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, is an older attraction that was kind of repurposed to fit into the whole uh, storybook uh, circus theme. Um, And, you know, while there are a few references that allude to its past, there, you know, the past of the ride itself, I mean, there's also one that goes even further back to Goofy's past, and that is Goofy's, you know, trademark scream that was created all those years ago. Um, just before getting on the attraction, you'll see a lot of props that Goofy used to aid him in his career as a stuntman. And one of these is a life preserver, you know, for his water-based feats. And the brand name of the life vest is Yaha Buoy, which if you read out loud really quickly, forms Goofy's signature yell whenever something goes horribly wrong in his world, which is basically like L.E. 5 minutes for Goofy,
1: right? Exactly, and we, we tried to get that scream to use for Communicore Weekly for the year of a million or so, the non-time cadet's announcement. But we couldn't afford it. We couldn't afford it. Sorry, guys. No, no. So anyway, so that brings us to the year of a man or so limit times cadets. Hooray. Okay. So this week's winner
0: is going to receive a Communicore Weekly Prize Pack. Ooh, and that winner is Kate
1: B. from Danvers, Massachusetts. Hooray. Hooray.
0: Congrats, forget, Kate.
1: There's, yes, congratulations, Kate. There's plenty of time that you can still enter. Unless you're Kate, you've already won. You already win. won. But there's Let's like another it. 49,
0: 48 yes. weeks.
1: Email CommunicoreWeekly@gmail.com at gmail.com with your name and address and your birthday, and we will add you to the drawing. Yay! Yes. Hey. So, okay, guys, we've made it to the end of another episode of Communicore Weekly, so thank you so much for watching and listening to us. Please, however
0: you get the show, uh, leave us a rating on iTunes or leave us a comment on YouTube. We'd love to hear from you. Yep, and you can always email us at CommunicoreWeekly@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And you can
1: also like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash CommuniCore Weekly. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Periscope occasionally. I'm at Imagine Nerding. He's at Jeff Heimbach.
0: And of course, you can always call us on the CommuniCore Weekly GOAT line at
1: 424-785-4628. And visit CommuniCoreWeekly.Spreadshirt.com to get some awesome CommuniCore Weekly stuff and there's also plenty of time to get
0: your Communicore Weekly membership card and stickers by sending a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly PO Box 432 Orange California 92856
1: and you can always visit patreon.com/communicoreweekly to find out how you can help support the greatest online show For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George
0: Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. More.